Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. I have a few things to go over that are schedule channel things. So if you're not interested at all in any of that, you can skip ahead to the first question. The uh, It's all divided up into chapters here on YouTube. Uh, so changes for what's happening lately. I'm taking some time off. I'm uh, I'm feeling a little burnt and I need some time and also I need some time to get some things done otherwise uh, sort of off camera. So, um, so I will be taking December off. Now, what that means is that Scientology Straight Up and Vertical, the weekly show that Tony Ortega and I do, will continue. That will be posted every Monday as usual and I will be continuing to produce those with him. But I will not be producing my podcast Q&A show or doing the Friday live shows. And I probably won't be doing any live streams. Maybe, might, possibly. But, you know, don't really have that uh, in the uh, predictable, uh, on, the le- on the lineup. Hmm. So you can continue watching uh, the Tony show with me and, uh, and we'll do that through December. December tends to be the slowest time for the, uh, of the year for my, me and my channel and viewers and all that anyway. Everybody's so super distracted by going out and buying things and all that and uh, holiday nonsense and everything and seeing relatives and travel and everything else that they leaves usually little time for you know, engaging in watching and cult watching. So anyway, I hope all y'all will still be with me when I come back in 2024. Now, when I come back, I will be rebranding or retitling the Sensibly Speaking podcast. As I've gone over with you guys, uh, some of you at least, you know, in the comments or in the in the community tab, I've been looking at renaming or rebranding that podcast because sensibly speaking as a podcast doesn't really communicate much of anything. And I really wish I'd thought of that years ago, but uh, it's just sort of, well, it's a sensibly speaking podcast, but that's not really why people go and listen to me or listen to the content that I have there. It's about cults. And so I'm changing the name of the podcast to Speaking of Cults, dot, dot, dot. Uh, And that will be the title of the of the podcast, and I'll be getting a new domain name and setting all of that up during this time that I'm away, and uh, coming back in 2024, and so the Sensibly Speaking podcast will change, convert over to that. Uh, It won't really change in terms of layout, format, what we're doing with the podcast. It's the same podcast with the same things that I've been going over for years, and will continue to do so, because I just find that podcast to be uh, a lot of fun, and it's and it's my chance to interview and talk with other people for the most part. Sometimes I do monologues, but uh, anyway, that podcast will carry on in that vein. So you'll see a new title, new look for that podcast, but it will be the same podcast you've come to know and love from me over all these years. Uh, okay, no other changes in terms of the Q&A show. Uh, that'll come back like we're doing. But I hope you all have some questions to send me because I'm actually getting my queue emptied out, which is awesome in one sense and maybe not so awesome in another. So um, anyway, if you have questions for me about cults, coercive control, uh, you know, any of this kind of stuff, recovery from, etc., cetera, uh, go ahead and send them to me. Put them in the comment section below here or send them to me by email. 
And with all of that, I think uh, I think that's about everything we have to say. Um, so I will be making this announcement throughout November. This won't be the only time you guys are going to hear this. It's just the first time. So um, so hopefully all of you will catch this so that by the time December rolls around, it won't be a big surprise that I'm not posting stuff. Anyway, so I want to take a moment here as I um, uh, kind of do from time to time to thank my supporters and thank my my friends and viewers out there who support this channel and keep it going. Um, you guys are the ones who are keeping me, keeping the lights on and really keeping me going. So I want to thank you for that and I want to encourage more of you to please do that uh, either through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, etc. Uh, Patreon is really, and also YouTube memberships. I've got them, I've got memberships turned on here on this channel as well. And when you sign up on Patreon, by the way, this is a common thing and I'm not sure how it's unclear because I haven't signed up for Patreon in a while. But uh, you can sign up for any amount you want to put into the support. You don't have to go with one of the preset tiers of support uh, or levels. Okay, so there we go. Now let's get on with your questions. Leonard 2779, when it comes to prosecuting the Church of Scientology, what's in it for the government to go after the cult? Years of lawsuits, tying up courts, delay after delay, and can be proven better now that this isn't a religion? Could the IRS fight Miscavige better now than before? Okay, so uh, there is the concept or idea of taking Scientology's tax exemption away from them, which would be an IRS decision. It would not be a prosecutorial court matter. The, the IRS would simply remove their tax exemption, and that would be that. After an investigation, they don't have to take them to court to do that. So let's get that out of the way. Then there is the matter of criminally prosecuting Scientology. And this is what I'm going to talk about here in answering the question because, um, because it'll also address the IRS thing. Um, so we've had, in terms of why would it be better now or what would be different now in prosecuting Scientology versus maybe in the past... Well, we certainly do have a higher public awareness of what cults and, and cults like Scientology specifically get up to. We know everybody knows what they're about, and or at least not everybody, uh, as we found out in the jury selection on Masterson's trial, right? There are people out there who don't know that much about Scientology, haven't heard that much about it, but we've never been in a place where more people have known about it than now in history, right? More people really understand what Scientology is than ever before. And that's generally that way with cults across the boards. All the cult documentaries, all the cult stories and, and podcasts and survivor stories are now more popular than they've ever been. And there's a reason for that. It's because people are finding their voice. We have social media for people to use to access their voice and, and get their messages known. And that's made a real difference. When we talk about all the negatives and, and harsh realities of, of social media and the controls and everything that go on with that, we sometimes fail to acknowledge the other side of this, which is that it's given voice to people like me who would not have a voice otherwise. Right? I can write books. Not everybody can. 
I uh, would be doing that if I wasn't doing this. And in fact, I'm, I'm doing that anyway. Uh, but it's a, I'd have more books out if I wasn't doing YouTube videos all the time. But other than getting books out, you know, videos have really been a revolution in people finding their voices and being able to get the word out about destructive or harmful things that have happened to them. And sometimes they have a point and sometimes they don't. But when it comes to the cult stuff, we've learned about things we never, ever would have known otherwise at all. No media, no reporters, no TV, no documentarians have ever dived into some of these groups and some of these cults. And the survivors are the ones that we have to thank for even knowing about their existence. So um, so we're seeing quite a bit of that empowerment happening now. And that matters because it means that there's more voices out there with more stories willing to testify in court as to what happened to them. And, um, and there's an intolerance for these kind of abuses now that there wasn't, that there hasn't been in history. Now, that all being said, that's just on the sort of social popular media side of things. When it comes to government prosecution, that's important. And I'm talking about it because it can give some support and some backbone to prosecutors who have to decide whether they're going to prosecute a case or not based on the legal merits and whether they're going to be able to win or not. And that's how an awful lot of these groups get away with what they get away with is because prosecutors go, well, yeah, I know they're doing it, but that doesn't mean I can prove it. And in a court, it doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you can prove. And, you know, while I'm quoting Tom Cruise from Few Good Men there, it's a, it's a true line. And so um, prosecutors have that as their first, uh, you know, sort of barrier to entry of getting into the courtroom at all is, is this case winnable? Is this case prosecutable? And then two, do they want to invest taxpayer money in prosecuting this case? And that's a, that's a weighty question because if they waste a bunch of time and a bunch of money on a case that is not winnable or isn't going to be won, then that's a waste of public resources and is not them doing their job. So, um, so they have to balance that into the equation now. Those things being said, popular sentiment also has everything to do with this. Keith Raniere is an example. Uh, the Nexium case. That case was only brought to trial, as far as I'm concerned, because of the Me Too movement and the coincidence of those things coming together in a New York Times expose article, which finally got you know, the feds and the New York prosecutors to, uh, to get going on that. They knew about Raniere for years but they did not prosecute him. Uh, they had to build the case, but once the case is built, you still have to get that political will to go prosecute it. And I think it was the New York Times and the, uh, and the ex-members and those things coming together which provided that impetus. Uh, and so now Keith Rainier is in jail. And, and watching how that happened, and you know, not just why it happened, but how it, was, how it was prosecuted. They went down to Mexico. They grabbed him. They brought him back. I mean, it was a whole thing. Um, could they do that? Would they do that? Should they do that with David Miscavige? You bet they should. But they have to have a case they can prove. Now, maybe a RICO case is the way to go. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it is, but I still need to do my own research on that uh, to, to fully nail that down. Maybe there's other avenues of approach they could take. Scientology engages in um, you know fraud on a, on a routine basis, for example. They could go on a financial 
tack into Scientology and, to, and, and prosecute them that way for, say, credit card fraud, uh, institutional, systematic credit card fraud, not just one or two bad apples, but the whole church involved. They have plenty of historical precedent to go in on that and prosecute on that vein if they wanted to. Um, but it's a lot of information gathering. It's a lot of forensic accounting. It's a lot of you know ups and downs and translating all of the Scientologies and, and the systems and stuff. Now, what they have to their advantage here is, of course, years of IRS tax audits that were uh, apparently independently verified by some third party. So, uh, so maybe there's information in there or are those just cooked books and the IRS has been, you know, been being fed a, a song and dance story all these years and the actual finances of Scientology are different from that. And wouldn't that be interesting if they were false reporting to the IRS? I, I wonder, I wonder about that. Um, but it would take a full-blown investigation, and that would be months and months and months of time uh, going through all those books and doing all that work. And does the federal government feel, or a state, is there a state federal prosecutor or state county uh, prosecutor who wants to do that or has the resources to do that? That seems to be, you know, uh, the answer seems to be no, but we just, we just don't know. We don't know what the hell is going on when it comes to prosecuting Scientology. But... Um, you know, could it be proven better now that this isn't a religion? Yes, I really do believe it could. I think, I think all the raw data is out there. I just think we need some legal eagles to put it together in such a way that it will compel a judge to stop, you know, uh, listening to Scientology's bullshit arguments. But that's the, that's kind of the whole point of the court is to listen equally to both sides, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, I also want to I want to be clear that um, or make sure everybody understands that so many of the legal shenanigans that Scientology gets away with they only get away with because they're engaging in that in a civil courtroom in a civil trial. Um, civil lawsuits are a whole different matter from if Scientology were being criminally prosecuted. You would not see David Miscavige running around avoiding service and then playing whack-a-mole with him you know, trying to deliver a subpoena to him for his trial if he were criminally indicted. It would be a completely different picture. If Miscavige tried pulling any of that crap with federal marshals, they would, they would hunt him down and they would arrest him. So, um, so he would not be afforded the same degree of latitude and get away with all the bullshit that they get away with in a criminal trial. It's very different very, very different set of circumstances there. So I want to be clear about the fact that, um, that the government would have a lot of power to be able to force that trial to happen. And short of Miscavige literally becoming a fugitive, uh, that, that trial would happen in, in a very short order compared to the way the civil trials play out for years and years. You just get away with all kinds of nonsense in the, in the lawsuit trials that, that you don't get away with criminally. So anyway, um, those are some thoughts about this that, that I had, I guess. Um, I do believe that, the, that there is a very good reason and a lot of public sentiment behind prosecuting Scientology. And I, 
I sit here honestly in a state of confusion as to where we sit with the government prosecuting them. I, I don't get it. And you've seen me over the years endlessly chewing the carpet here over how frustrated I am about their lack of uh, you know, seeming ability to prosecute Scientology criminally. It doesn't make any sense to me. So that's all I can really comment on about this. You know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a legal eagle, so I, I don't know more to say about it than that. But anyway, there you go. CC writer, what do you know of former disciples of Hubbard, such as Lester Levinson of the Sedona Method and Warner Earhart of Est slash Landmark Forum? I had heard that both of these men had been declared SPs by Scientology. I wonder what is known of their relationship with the master. All right. Thank you for asking me about this. I looked into Lester Levinson, and of course, I've talked about Warner Earhart before. Uh, now, I don't believe that either one of these men ever studied with or even met L. Ron Hubbard directly, nor were either of them, as I understand it, ever Scientologists. However, they certainly borrowed liberally from L. Ron Hubbard's works, as L. Ron Hubbard did with earlier people's works, right? Going back to Blavatsky, etc., as we've talked about so many times on this channel. I've got whole podcasts, if you guys don't know, with a man named Joe Zimhart, where we have laid out in detail Hubbard's plagiarism and ripping off ideas from 19th century spiritualism, mysticism, and earlier occult practices. And there are a panoply of things that Hubbard was drawing from, mostly centered around Aleister Crowley's and the uh, Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO's, work uh, in the occult. Hubbard loved Crowley, and he loved what he and his concepts of magic with a K and all of that nonsense, and he based a lot of his work on Crowley's work. He, he really did rip off a lot of Crowley's ideas and formatting and way of putting things together, even with logics and axioms and things like that in his early works. It was all, all inspired by and built on Crowley's stuff and modeled after a lot of that. Um, but you also find other occult work uh, going back to... Um, Oh, you know, stuff from the Freemasons and the, and the Golden Dawn, the Order of the Golden Dawn and, you know, earlier occult stuff. There, there's, there's all kinds of interesting paths to go down with this. And these guys, by the way, it's not like Hubbard's unique in this or either, either our Lester and, and uh, Warner and, and ripping off Hubbard. This entire field, the pseudoscientific, mystical, new age, self-help realm, is nothing but a couple of recycled, rehashed, rebranded ideas that just play out over and over and over again. That's all it is. It's the same stuff that's been floating around through history for centuries, repackaged and reworked. You know, that's all it is. Uh, none of these people are original thinkers. Not one of them is an original thinker. None of them have had a new original idea about any of this stuff. The only thing they bring any creativity or imagination to are the labels they use to describe their techniques or their phenomena or the labels they use to name different parts of the mind or different parts of the spirit or your chakras or your inner eyes and all this other nonsense. It's all just language recreation and repackaging. It's, you know, once you start studying this stuff, you see it's just the same ideas regurgitated over and over. And this has been going on for a long, long time. 
Um, so Lester Levinson of the Sedona Method kind of came up with his own stuff around 1952, and there's a whole history there. He died, I think, in 82. He had some heart condition, and he he, he kind of hid away in his in his apartment. This is Lester, right? And decided to, to, to study things and learn things, and he came up with this whole method of emotional control where you're sort of being mindful of your emotions in the moment. There's a series of questions you can ask yourself to sort of untrigger yourself or de-stimulate yourself if you're all like stimulated by your emotional senses uh, or experiences, right? Or you're triggered or you're having trauma responses or something. So, um, you know, does the Sedona method work? Well, it works for some people sometimes, but that doesn't, you know, is it universally workable? Has he hit on some, you know, universal path to, you know, universal emotional harmony and peace for everybody? Of course not. Not, not nothing like that. It's the, the Sedona method can, you know, um, claims to be scientifically validated. It is not, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so it's just more of the same. I found the Sedona Institute to be on the list of Scientology enemies on, on the Xenu.net website. Uh, so maybe they are declared SPs, but Lester Levinson's name is not on the list of enemies of Scientology. Warner Earhart and Est most certainly is, and I, I'm absolutely positive that Warner Earhart is declared suppressive um, or is considered a suppressive within Scientology. Lester, I don't know. I never heard about him. And what I can say about Scientology's relationship with Est is that Warner Earhart so copied L. Ron Hubbard's work that in the original 1970s workshops, the three four-day seminars that they were doing, they were they had Scientology hardcover text uh, textbooks, dictionaries, to define the words that Warner had ripped out of Scientology for his own Est seminars. So he was ripping off Hubbard so blatantly that he was even using Hubbard's dictionary to define the terms. So that's how blatant that was. And Scientology, as I've discussed before, has actually put together a repair action where you go into auditing in Scientology to address your experiences in EST because they are convinced that those experiences are damaging to you and only Scientology has the solution to fix it so that you can then do Scientology. It's called the Est Repair Rundown. It's a whole thing, right? There's a correction list, etc. So this is a formalized thing in Scientology. They hate Est. And they hate Landmark Forum because it's the same thing. And if you went into Scientology, having done Est or Landmark or Forum, they will be doing this with you because they will tell you that you have been uh, exposed to destructive practices that hurt you. And they were not, they're not wrong. Uh, that you have been dis- exposed to destructive practices that will hurt you if you take part in EST or FORM or Landmark. Uh, we've done whole podcasts here about that. So I'm not going to repeat all of that here, but it's bad. It's bad stuff, uh, just like Scientology's bad. So anyway, um, so that's what I can say about that. And, um, and don't believe everything you read about this stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there connecting dots between these different groups. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of these guys come up with 
a lot of their control mechanisms and and stuff like that they 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 grab from other people's stuff all the time but they also you know there's only so many ways to control people there really is a small list it's not a, there's not a lot of ways and once you know all those ways it's really just a matter of changing up the format or the language you're using or the the method or the um the, the 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 way the words of your mantra might be different, but you're going to have mantras, right? The words you use in your thought stopping cliches might be different from subject to subject to subject, but you're going to have thought stopping cliches. You're going to have loaded language. You're going to have sacred lore or sacred science. You're going to have milieu control. You know all these things that they do to control their members, right? All the same. So. Um, Anyway, that's what I can say about that. What's the strangest question about the cult you've gotten and the oddest in general? Generally speaking, the weird questions that I get tend to be around conspiracy theories connected with cults, especially around Scientology. I've been asked questions about L. Ron Hubbard's body double and about Ingo Swan and remote viewing and how the CIA really took over Scientology in 1972. And what about that, Chris? And, you know, what about this? What about David Miscavige being a CIA asset and destroying Scientology from within, you know, and all of this, which is a theory that actually has some degree of logic connected with it. I mean, Hubbard, uh, Miscavige certainly has been destroying Scientology, but he's not a CIA asset. And I get asked about these conspiracy theories and stuff, and you see me laugh about this stuff and talk about it. But um, I think those are some of the strangest questions about cults that I've gotten. Are those kind of off the, you know, way off the, the beaten path kind of stuff? Because it's all just fantasy, right? I mean, you can have, you know, conspiracies about conspiracies, I guess. And then, uh, I don't know, oddest in general, it's not like I remember these things, but, you know, I've been asked some pretty weird personal questions about my emotions and about my personal life that I've sort of like, okay, that's nice that you can ask that question, but I'm not going to answer it, you know, kind of stuff. So, I don't know, stuff like that. I, I You know, maybe I should have kept a, 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 a note of book of this stuff or something, but I, I don't. I, you know, I, I get questions, I answer them, and they're gone. And uh, that's kind of how I've been dealing with this stuff all these years. Mark P. Has anyone ever done a complete investigation into the death of Quentin Hubbard? I never really accepted the suicide story. Okay, Mark. Well, I believe the suicide story is true. Uh, Quentin Hubbard did, um, you know, self end himself. And, um, and I believe that the most complete investigation that was done on that was actually carried out by the Guardian's office and Mary Sue, who, remember, was the head of the Guardian's office, when Quentin took off and did that. And L. Ron Hubbard's response to it classically uh, was something on the order of, God damn it, that kid, what's that kid done to me now? Or, boy, you know, it's, it was all about him, right? It was a very Trumpian response, if I, if I say so. And, um, and yeah, right, because Hubbard was all about him. I don't think he really cared one iota about any of his children, ever. I don't think he really gave a care in the world. Uh, about the state or concern or emotional life of any of his children uh, by any of his wives. They were only useful tools to him. And uh, when they were gone or when they were no longer loyal to him, they were dead to him and uh, worse than dead to him because, um, you know, he would even engage in some of the most despicable, awful, Fair gaming practices were directed toward his own kid, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., right, Nibs. 
So when it came to Quentin, um, when his death, you know, when when news of his death was received, I this is all just kind of guesswork on my part, based a little bit on some of the conversations I'd had with John Atack about investigations that were done or or things that the GEO was up to to protect Quentin and to kind of keep an eye out on him uh, uh, in various ways. John and I have talked about this in some videos, but. I think that if anybody would have been interested in pursuing how did Quentin die for sure, it was Mary Sue. And she had the entire intelligence apparatus of the Guardian's office at her disposal to get the answers to those questions. And I think she got every answer to every question she had. And it was pretty clear that it was a suicide. Um, And had it not been, had they found somebody who had actually been the perpetrator of that crime... I mean, do you really think we wouldn't have heard about it by now as to what would have happened to that person? Either a prosecutor, you know, they would have either turned him in or they would have done something about it. And if they did something about it, we've never heard anything about that at all. And we've heard all these other things, right? It seems unlikely to me. Um, it's possible in, this, in the realm of all things that are possible you know, that Mary Sue could have found out that somebody did away with her kid and had that person done away with. But this is where we're in the land of pure conjecture. There is no evidence of any kind anywhere that that happened. So I can say it's possible in the same way I can say it's possible there's a teapot circling Mars right now, right? Orbiting around Mars, right? But there isn't. Uh, cause you know, the chances of that are so unlikely that it's, that, that it's ridiculous unless you can provide some evidence and same with Quentin, right? Uh, the evidence points to the fact that he, uh, that he ended his own life. It was a very tragic life. It was very, very sad. There was no reason it had to go down that way. And that was 100% as far as I'm concerned, L. Ron Hubbard's fault. We can lay Quentin's death, uh, 100% at the feet of L. Ron Hubbard my take. And there you go. Jay Blair, what is your opinion of the assertion some are making that many people have died following the COVID vaccine? They are saying that it is not a side effect, but that it was designed as a bioweapon. Just wondering what you think about that. Okay, well, I think that's total bullshit. Um, And the reason I think that is because I've had the COVID vaccine three times. And if it's a bioweapon, then how come I'm still alive? Where, where's the evidence, right? My, my entire point about conspiracy theories, especially dumbass conspiracy theories around COVID and the vaccines developed for COVID, and there have been no shortage of some of the dumbest conspiracy theories I have ever heard. I have been looking into conspiracy theories for 10 straight years. I used to be a conspiracy theorist. I know exactly what the mindset feels like. I I do. I totally get it. It's stupid. It's a bunch of people acting so stupid that you can't even really put words to it, right? Because it's so outlandish, the things that they believe are actually true. And this is would be an example of one of them. If you're going to believe in something like that, some extraordinary claim, you better have extraordinary evidence. And it better be evidence that actually stands up in a court of law, that kind of evidence. Not links to some blog. 
not supposition about Fauci, not some opinion some asshole on some podcast has. I'm not interested in any of that. I want evidence. And if you have evidence that the COVID vaccine is a bioweapon, I'm very interested in knowing that. But it's not any more, again, than there's a teapot orbiting Mars. There just isn't. And you can sit there and make videos about it and talk about it and show diagrams of of teapots going around Mars, and it's not proof of a goddamn thing. Get the teapot. Get the guy who made the teapot. Get video of the teapot. You know, let's see some evidence, not stupid suppositions and conspiracy theories. That's my opinion of that. And I dismiss it out of hand in the same way I dismiss the teapot floating around Mars, right? If you can't prove it to me, don't bother trying to convince me it's true. That's what I have to say about those things. Michael Yoder, in a lecture to auditors called Unknown Datum and Mest in 1955, Hubbard talks a lot about knowingness and not knowingness and how not knowingness leads to knowingness, which makes no sense to me, but is familiar from landmark slash est speak. Can you talk more about how not knowing something can lead to knowing something in the Scientology sense? It's all word salad and confusing concepts. All right, thank you, Michael. And this one is one of those twisty ones because the hidden trick in the, at the bottom of this thing is that not knowing this is a choice. In Scientology, you have to understand that the underlying principle of all of it is the existence of the Thetan. And the Thetan is all-knowing, all-perceiving, all-aware. That is what a Thetan is. It is an awareness of awareness unit. It knows everything. Because this universe that we live in, the bodies we occupy, the planet we're walking around on, the jobs we have, the mice we use, the pens we write with, the philosophy we debate about, all of it is actively being created by you and me and the 24-7, 365. We're the ones creating all of this. And we've put it on automatic. We don't think about having to create it any more than we think about our heart beating. It just happens. But it doesn't just happen. Your brain is making it happen. Your body is a unit. You know, it's all, it's all being made to happen. It's being actively created, in other words, every second of every day that you're alive. Your heartbeat is going. In the same way... You, as a spiritual entity, according to L. Ron Hubbard, are creating this environment that you're in, this whole world, this entire thing, this entire universe. We're doing it. That means that in, the, in our heart of hearts, at our core level, at, 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 the, at the level of, the, of, of who we really are, we know everything there is to know already. And we have to choose to not know certain things in order to have a game, in order to be able to be here and do this at all. 
In order to be in a body, you have to forget you're a thetan. In order to be in a body, you have to forget you know that you're creating this body. You have to unknow these things, and you do that through the, the action of not knowing. So not knowing comes after knowing. You know something, you know everything. You know everything that is and ever will be and ever potentially could be. That's what you really are. That's, that's your godhood, right? That's why I say, at native state, being a Thetan is being God. That's, that's pretty much everybody's concept of it, right? Is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing. But if God wanted to come down to earth and be in a body and have a human life, he'd have to forget an awful lot, right? In order for the experience to be meaningful to him as a human, same thing. In order for us to have this existence, we have to forget a lot. And that forgetting is the not knowing, okay? And Hubbard loves making nouns out of all this stuff. So he talks about knowingness and not knowingness, right? But it's, it, you know, these are just, anyway. These are, this is the, these are the philosophical ideas underlying this uh, or, the, or the, you know, the Scientology uh, ideas underlying this. And, um, and the thing about knowing everything, of course, is that you have so solidified through all the billions and trillions of years of your existence here that you forgot that you know everything a long time ago. <laughs> you just totally forgot that you know it all. And so now you can't just snap your fingers and know it all because you've laid in place so many traps and so many mental barriers to knowing everything that you don't have a clue, you know, which side is up. You don't even know you are a spiritual entity. That's homo sap, right? Homo sapiens, as Hubbard would say, um, you know, in the here and now is we're so fucked up. We don't even, we don't even have a clue how fucked up we are, right? It's that bad. So that's how the knowingness, not knowingness thing kind of works in Scientology, okay? Um, so I hope I communicated that clearly, right? Um, as, there's a definition here of not know from the Scientology dictionary, which says that not know, to not know something, is an actual ability to not know is an ability to erase by self-command the past, without suppressing it with energy or going into any other method, Hubbard says. So it's just deciding, okay, I'm going to not know this whole section of stuff so that I can go play this game with these bodies and go have some fun, right? And then somehow trillions of years ago, that whole thing got totally out of hand and here we are. Okay, and that's that's the Scientology viewpoint of that stuff. Um, I, I'm not saying that any of this is true. It's not, but it is L. Ron Hubbard's explanation of it. So hope that helps clarify things, Mike. All right, and that is our uh, show for this week. We did it. And thank you very much for coming around and listening to me talk and blabber on about all this stuff. I truly, truly hope that you are finding my shows interesting, entertaining, and informative and educational. And I hope that you will share my work. Um, I very much would like to grow my channel and I would like to do so with your help. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.